Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, the program that asks the question, is Homo sapiens is on the air. My premise is Homo is not sapiens. We don't learn. We just keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and over, and you can do the rest of that. Um, prime example this week comes from New York City. In a report on a coastal resiliency study for New York, for the New York area, guess who has set out plans to protect New York Harbor from flooding? Yes, over there in the corner. Right, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Let's just uh, turn the clock back a few years to um, September, actually uh, late August, of 2005, when a hurricane protection system built for the New Orleans area by the Army Corps of Engineers failed in more than 53 different locations under storm surge conditions lower than it was predicted to withstand. Six months later, the then head of the Army Corps apologized for what he called on that day a system in name only. He then retired immediately thereafter, and the Corps never spoke of it again in that regard. So now here we are, 2022, and um, a new uh, uh, possible customer has appeared for the Army Corps. New York. They got more money than New Orleans. The study area included 25 counties in New Jersey and New York, home to some 16 million people. Here's the plan. Seawalls, levees, storm surge gates. Well, the plan for the New Orleans hurricane system in name only was seawalls and levees, and later on, some storm surge gates. So they've learned a lot. They've moved right along. Quote, this plan is probably our last best chance to protect communities from this triple threat of storm surge, sea level rise, and cloud bursts like we had last year with Ida, said the director of the Resilient Coastal Communities Project at Columbia Climate School, Paul Galley. Paul Galley, yeah, Paul, Paul Galley, said the measures would protect 900 miles of coastline. Want to bet? The storm surge gates would close during storms. They would be located uh, all over the place. There's 40 different measures the Army Corps identified that they could possibly bring in to protect us in all of this different coastline we're trying to protect, Galley said. Structural measures like walls and gates and berms, ways we can improve infrastructure inland so the storm water is managed better, natural solutions so you have more wetlands to contain the storm. Oh, natural solutions. Yeah, what happened to those? We're still waiting on those here in New Orleans, whence this program originates. Um, like the Dutch have, you see, these natural solutions, because they seem to fare better under uh, wacky conditions. 
project would cost $52 billion. That's music to any Corps of Engineers' ears. It must be approved by federal, state, and local officials. Work would begin in 2030, be completed by 2044. Quote, The Corps has been tasked with solving the nation's toughest engineering challenges. Unquote. This is from uh, Representative of the Corps. Yeah, challenges like uh, not screwing up the Everglades. They did that so well. Or challenges like protecting New Orleans from the maximum probable hurricane, which is what LBJ promised after the last big hurricane in 1965. Uh, the Corps representative says it, the challenges include making communities more adaptable and stronger in the face of powerful coastal storms that are becoming more frequent. This study will ensure we're prepared to do everything possible to provide additional coastal storm risk reduction measures to the communities we serve. That's the new slogan of the Corps, risk reduction. We don't protect anything. We just reduce a little risk. We have learned so very much. Ladies and gentlemen, hello, welcome to the show. Thank you. 
from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. New Yorkers, don't believe, you know, a cartoon voice. Check out the reports from the University of California, Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and from the LSU, now closed, Hurricane Center. Two independent forensic engineering investigations into the 2005 New Orleans flood. See where one of the co-authors of the UC Berkeley study called what happened in New Orleans in 2005, the, quote, the greatest man-made engineering catastrophe since Chernobyl. (laughs) That, That sounds a little pikey for Chernobyl. I think we could get a better sound effect later on. But now... Those were just my keys. Yes, it's a smart world, despite what I said about homo. We're sapiensing right now with driverless cars. At least three driverless cruise cars. Cruise is a brand uh, manufactured by our good friends in Chevrolet, for your uh, listening pleasure. And uh, they were responsible, these cruise cars, for holding up traffic and reportedly blocking a bus lane in San Francisco last week, according to the San Francisco news source SF Gate, and repeatedly, reportedly blocking a bus lane in San Francisco, as I say, the latest in a string of incidents involving the locally headquartered self-driving car company, although it's owned by GM. It's the latest in a string of incidents involving the company. A video shared on Reddit showed two of Cruz's vehicles at a standstill about a week ago, near the intersection of Sacramento and Leavenworth Streets, if you know where that is, and I think some of you do, with their hazard lights flashing. A muni bus appeared to be stalled about a block behind them. Come on, we've got to get the F going, one person could be heard yelling in the background of the video. Another responded, there's no driver. Another cruise car caused a similar disruption near the corner of Geary and Franklin Street, Geary Boulevard, that same evening according to uh, TV station KRON. The autonomous vehicle reportedly veered into a bus lane and stopped mere inches away from a bus, forcing the driver to reroute and maneuver around it. TV station reported that yet another cruise car halted in the middle of the road at Sacramento and Mason Streets, its lights flashing, and music piping out of the radio. The non-driver was listening to music, Now that's advanced. That's progress. Drew Pusateri, 
who is a spokesperson for Cruz, told SFGate that the car stopped due to, quote, a technical issue, unquote. That's so reassuring. At least we know it wasn't a banana peel. A team from the tech company, which is based in San Francisco, was dispatched to recover each vehicle, arriving within 20 minutes of the disruptions. You're just sitting there for 20 minutes waiting for the crew to come. And Safety is the guiding principle of everything we do, Pusateri said in a statement. Kind of original. Safety is the first priority of everybody here at Le Show, as you know. Quote, that means if our cars encounter a situation where they aren't able to safely proceed, they stop and turn on their hazard lights, lights and we either get them operating again or pick them up as quickly as possible. This could be because of a mechanical issue like a flat tire, a road condition, or a technical problem, says Pusateri. We're working to minimize how often this happens and apologize to anyone impacted, unquote. So remember this one. We get to the apologies later. This is one. There were no collisions or injuries, according to Pusateri. The news came after nearly 20 of Cruz's driverless cars blocked traffic for two hours on the corner of Guff and Fulton Streets in San Francisco a couple months ago. Cars also obstructed a fire truck responding in an emergency in May, according to Wired. That led to a delayed response that resulted in property damage and personal injuries, according to authorities. You know, it's just early days for driverless cars. And, far from being the digital gold that some people claim, Bitcoin's relative climate change impact is greater than the beef industry, over seven times more than actual gold mining. Economic, this is reported by the Register, the British Tech Journal. Economic researchers compared the environmental impact of Bitcoin, which is created by using computing brute force to crack complex algorithmic puzzles against three measures of environmental impact between January 2016 and December of last year. Led by uh, Benjamin Jones, who's an associate professor of economics at the University of New Mexico. They have a, a university. They looked at whether the estimated climate damages are increasing over time. They also looked at whether the market price of Bitcoin exceeds the economic cost of climate damages caused by Bitcoin mining and how the climate damages per coin mined compared to climate damages of other stuff. Astoundingly, according to the Register, the Register was astounded. They found that in 2020, Bitcoin mining used 75.4 terawatt hours per year. That's higher energy usage than the country of Austria or the country of Portugal. Researchers found the energy emissions for Bitcoin mining had grown 126 times between 2016 and 2021. A Bitcoin mine in 2021 created 11,000 change in climate damages with total global damages of Bitcoin mining exceeding $12 billion or 25% of market prices. 
The Economist went on to compare the cryptocurrency's climate impact to that of other industries, less than electricity produced by natural gas and gasoline produced from crude oil. It was slightly greater than the relative damage of beef production and much more than gold mining. Quote, taken together, these results represent a set of sustainability red flags. While proponents have offered Bitcoin mining as representing digital gold from a climate damages perspective, it operates more like digital crude, said the researchers in a paper published in Nature Scientific Reports this week. They went on to suggest the study could drive changes in regulation to make Bitcoin mining sustainable. Underline could. More smart world news. And back in San Francisco and back with cruise cars, two San Francisco transit agencies have asked the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration to check the safety of those self-driving cars. This uh, happened because GM petitioned the Highway Traffic Safety Administration, for a safety rule exemption for their cruise cars. So the directors of Municipal Transportation Agency and County Transportation Authority in San Francisco are urging the federal agency to take a closer look at how those cruise cars have been doing on city streets. They have been authorized to operate commercially as a late-night robo-taxi service in San Francisco by the California Public Utilities Commission. Rollout hasn't been 100% successful. Multiple malfunctions, as you've heard. Cars refusing to drive as well as causing traffic jams. The uh, heads of the two traffic agencies express enthusiasm about, quote, the opportunity for automated driving to significantly improve street safety, unquote. They also know GM's petition fails to document or analyze the safety performance either of Cruz's existing modified Chevy Bolt or its forthcoming origin automated, sorry, autonomous vehicle. They raised several concerns. There are only 100 Cruz AVs operating on the city streets right now. The agency says if even half of the 5,000 called for in the GM petition were allowed, this fleet expansion could significantly undermine street performance for all San Francisco travelers. Even the mimes. As a precedent, the letter cites San Francisco research that found that 5,700 Uber and Lyft cars in 2016 caused 25% of all traffic delays in the city. And uh, the challenge of dealing with With a malfunctioning cruise, which, as you know from the earlier story, involves a human driver being sent out, makes the spate of recently observed travel lane cruise AV failures far more consequential because what's coming next, the Origin AV, lacks manual controls and can't be fetched by a company driver. It's just got to be towed. That won't uh, block up any traffic. Homo doesn't sapien very well, ladies and gentlemen. 
Now, news of uh, the land of 4,000 princes, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia plans to invest 142 billion rials, that's 38 billion of our dollars, to turn the kingdom into a hub for esports by 2030. That's part of pan- plans to diversify the economy off uh, the oil thing, esports. The kids will love it. Savvy Games Group, a unit of the country's sovereign wealth fund, will spend. $13 billion to acquire and develop a games publisher, and $19 billion to take minority stakes in gaming companies. According to a statement, it will also spend $5 billion investing in mature businesses in the gaming industry, and a further $533 million investing in early-stage gaming and esports companies. They're going to buy the thing up. Quote, we are harnessing the untapped potential across the esports and game sector to diversify our economy, drive innovation in the sector, and further scale the entertainment and esports competition offerings across the kingdom. That's uh, Crown Prince and Chairman of Savvy, their uh, games company, Mohammed bin Salman. Mohammed Bonesaw to you. And me. So maybe uh, kids will be learning to uh, bone saw each other electronically only, of course. Speaking of whom, Mohammed bin Salman has been named Prime Minister of Saudi Arabia. You'd think Crown Prince was enough for the guy? Chief bone saw uh, architect? No. This is a move that experts said would probably shield the Crown Prince from a potentially damaging lawsuit here in the good old USA, but we grow them by the bushel load in connection to his uh, alleged role in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Saudi Arabia announced this week that King Salman, the dad of MBS, is making an exception to Saudi law, naming his son as prime minister, formally ending his dual title, of king and prime minister that he had had until now. Development's not likely to change the balance of power in Saudi Arabia, according to The Guardian. The 37-year-old prince is already seen as the de facto ruler of the kingdom and heir to the throne, but the timing of the decision was seen by critics of the Saudi government as almost certainly linked to a looming court-ordered deadline coming this coming week. The Biden administration has been asked by a U.S. judge to weigh in on whether the prince... Prince Bonesaw, ought to be protected by sovereign immunity in a case brought by the fiancé of the murdered man. Such protection is usually granted to a world leader like a prime minister or a king, or in the case of his dad, a prime minister and a king. In July, the administration sought a delay in filing its response to the court, originally sought by August 1st. The judge agreed. The judge called on the administration to state whether it believed Prince Mohammed ought to be granted immunity under rules that protect countries' heads of state. Seems like the prince has been advised to take this step before the response of the Biden administration to the judge, says the Gulf director at dawn 
a pro-democracy group based in Washington, who was a party to the Khashoggi lawsuit. The White House did not immediately comment. Prince Mohammed has denied, of course, he's had personal involvement in the murder, but a U.S. intelligence assessment found that he was likely to have ordered the killing. So you pays your money and you takes your choice. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this week's edition of Foot Completely in Mouth is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And uh, first of all, we come to the case of... um, President of the United States, who was uh, in uh, appearing at a signing ceremony for some legislation, was uh, saluting the congressional members. Oh no, you know, before that, we have two foot foots completely in mouth. The first one, we'll get to the president. The first one is from the CPAC which is a uh, right-of-center Republican political organization, CPAC. They have a big conference every year, and all of the major Republicans and potential Republican candidates attend, and it's a big thing now, so they're pretty central to the uh, political life of the Republican Party. And this was CPAC's tweet toward the end of the week. Quote, Vladimir Putin announces the annexation of four Ukrainian-occupied territories. Biden and the Dems continue to send Ukraine billions of taxpayer dollars. Meanwhile, we're under attack at our southern border. When will Democrats put America first and end the gift-giving to Ukraine? Unquote. The four, quote, Ukrainian-occupied territories, unquote, in the tweet, were actually provinces of Ukraine. CPAC deleted the tweet within 12 hours, but dozens of people had taken screenshots of it by that time. Nothing dies on the Internet. But CPAC is hoping your memory hole will open up real soon. That was the first foot completely in mouth. Now, the second one came, as I say, when the president was... um, announcing a new piece of legislation that had been passed and paying tribute to the members of Congress who contributed to its passage. And I want to thank all of you here, for including bipartisan elected officials like Representative Governor, Senator Braun, Senator Booker, Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was, she was going to be here. She was killed two months ago in an auto accident.
From New Orleans, this is Lachaud, and now, ladies and gentlemen. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. 
Accusations against California prison employees were usually taken seriously and investigated properly in the first half of this year, according to a California Office of Inspector General report. But once wardens had investigative results in hand, they often issued penalties that were too light or made decisions too slowly, sometimes allowing officers to collect months' worth of paid leave before firing them. The office, tasked with monitoring discipline at the state's prisons, gave the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation an overall rating of poor in conducting internal investigations and handling employee discipline the first half of the year. Among the most egregious missteps identified in the report was the case of an unidentified correctional officer who allegedly assaulted his wife with a knife, threatened her with a firearm, and bit his son. He was arrested by law enforcement, according to the report, or it doesn't say where the officer worked. A warden reduced the officer's salary by 10% for two years. It's like he has an agent now, is all. But the inspector general office recommended firing him. So it's the difference between a 10% pay cut and being fired. In another case, four officers were accused of punching and kicking a prisoner in a housing unit, trying to cover it up with the help of a fifth officer, who closed a gate behind them. The warden didn't refer the incident to the Office of Internal Affairs for three months, 40 days later than department policy required. It took almost three years for Internal Affairs to finish its investigation, which it did 10 days before the deadline to administer discipline. The warden deemed the investigation insufficient, but there was no more time to investigate further, so the officers weren't disciplined. In a misstep by the Office of Internal Affairs, a newly hired officer wasn't fired immediately after helping a prisoner smuggle mobile phones into a prison and carrying knives, alcohol, and ammunition onto prison grounds. The officer admitted to criminal conduct, but due to delays by the Office of Internal Affairs, the department missed a chance to fire the new employee during her probationary period. The Office of Inspector General reviewed a selection of 147 cases, satisfactory 99 cases, poor 47 cases. Corrections Department spokeswoman said the department holds its employees to the highest standard and prioritizes thoroughness in its investigations. While we understand the Office of Inspector, Inspector General's concern on timeliness, the reality is every case is different and should be treated by its individual factors, she said. All right, then. You got it. Oh, and wait, there's more. An urgent internal watchdog notice to the federal government's landlord warns that federal child care centers might have contaminated water because officials did not effectively test for it. The alert mem- memorandum issued by the General Services Administration's Inspector General to that agency's Public Building Service Commissioner, it's a different PBS, described this as an issue that warrants, quote, your immediate attention. Without proper testing, the alert added, the government cannot ensure that children or staff at the child care centers have access to safe drinking water. They're like Flint. In Lake Flint, 
The warning comes after an earlier Government Accountability Office report warned that a Pentagon agency needs better oversight to ensure children in military families are properly screened, tested, and treated for lead exposure. The GSA manages federal facilities, including leased properties. They provided care in 92 independently operated centers for more than 7,000 children nationwide, although 84 of those closed during the pandemic. 74 reopened. Prolonged closures can lead to water stagnation that increases the risk of corrosion in the plumbing systems, which can trigger the release of lead and copper into the drinking water. It can also increase the risk and spread of Legionella bacteria. Yet GSA did not conduct water testing before reopening almost all of its child care centers that were closed during the pandemic. Testing was not comprehensive when they, where they did test the water. As a result, PBS does not have assurance that children and staff at the child care centers have access to safe drinking water. News of Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature this broadcast. And now, news of our friend the Adam. Yeah, exactly. Um, and here comes news of the atom for you. I'm just going to push a button or two here and then have it right for you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Reports from New Hampshire officials and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission regarding a mistaken siren activation at the Seabrook Nuclear Power Station last July. Those reports were released this week. Sirens along the coast in Rye, Northampton, Hampton, and Seabrook played a recorded message telling people to leave the beaches because of a problem at the Seabrook plant. Yeah, I, I got that gig. It was, you know, slow week at the Simpsons. Official confirmation that the alarm was false was first posted by the Department of Safety on Facebook well after the alarm sounded. The state's report confirms there was no procedure in place to properly communicate after false alarms are activated. State report details the breakdown of communication, including it took 20 minutes for a manager from the plant to call New Hampshire safety officials to confirm that it was a false alarm. The standards were so strict in terms of what's deemed an unusual event having to be a leak or degradation on the property, but I'm going to say this was truly a security risk in the fear it created said uh, one of the officials involved. The NRC's report concluded the power plant failed to ensure its alert system complied with approved federal emergency management agency alert and notification system designs. The violation is considered one of very low significance because although there was a latent error in the encoder programming, all 121 sirens remained functional and capable of alerting the public to an emergency. Officials said Seabrook staffers changed siren testing procedures, including guidance for how to proceed in case another alarm is inadvertently activated. If the same thing happened today, they would notify us through phone. We have a robust system in place to notify the public, said New Hampshire Safety Commissioner. 
All right, then. Job well done. And establishing an underground nuclear waste disposal site in Britain. What a good idea. It would create more than 4,000 jobs in its first 25 years of operation, said a government report. Three potential locations are being considered in Cumbria, along with a former gas terminal in Lincolnshire. Nuclear Waste Services, a government agency, said it would create work for about 175 years. And then what happens? Opponents said it would create the world's biggest construction site, affecting the environment and tourism. Don't you want to come see the place where we buried the thing? The um, Nuclear Waste Services Agency said community partnerships have been established in uh, three locations in Cumbria, along with, and here's my favorite English location name of the year, Thettlethorpe. I said Thettlethorpe. That's on the Lincolnshire coast, in case you want to go there. To provide information to local residents about a geological disposal facility, facility, a GDF. The report said the facility would become one of the biggest infrastructure projects in the U.K. and uh, said the government would be committed to recruiting locally where possible. They would have waste there stored under up to 3,200 feet of solid rock until its radioactivity had naturally decayed. The deputy chief executive of the agency said the long-term nature of the project provides a unique opportunity to develop skills, expertise, and sustainable jobs for a local community. We're now making real progress and having conversations with a number of communities about the potential for them to host a GDF. A community group in Lincolnshire said it would be harmful to both coastal wildlife and the tourist industry. Ken Smith from the group said this place exists from tourism. That's the way the Brits talk. And to keep the tourists coming, we have to keep investing. No one's going to invest money if they think that in five years' time there's going to be the world's biggest construction site on their doorstep, and in 15 years' time there's going to be a nuclear waste dump, unquote. And Dateline Vernon, Vermont, the last cask full of high-level radioactive waste will be loaded by the end of the week at the Vermont Yankee Nuclear Plant, and with it, 99.9% of the radioactivity will be out of the plant by next month. During a tour of the plant, which was shut down in 2014 by its then-owner Energy Nuclear, Officials from the current owner, North Star Group, showed the progress of the past year in demolishing and cleaning up the reactor, which at one point supplied one-third of Vermont's electric needs. Decommissioning started four years ago, going to be completed by 2030, if not earlier. The president of the company said that once the last cask is loaded, with the 58 already loaded casks, the radiological cleanup will hardly be completed and traditional Demolition remains. The high-level waste that's going to be placed in the last cask are pieces of the reactor core. They're the only plant components that will stay behind at the location of the plant. 
except for the thousands of spent fuel rods from the reactor, which will also stay on site until the U.S. Department of Energy finally builds a permanent repository for the dangerous high-level waste. That's the reporting of the Brattleboro Reformer on site in Vermont. So just the high-level waste of the fuel rods are going to remain after the cleanup. Oh, 
Ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Deadline Portland, Oregon, Oregon State University is apologizing for fan behavior at the recent football game against USC, University of California. The Trojans, a group of college-aged OSU fans, were seen draping a crass sign over the end zone wall in the student section of the stadium. It said, you can't spell, and this is a word, I don't think I can say on the radio, without USC. That's a statement to the Oregonian. No, that was, uh, yes. OSU said it is working to assure appropriate behavior from all people at OSU athletic events. We apologize to the University of Southern California, its fans and alumni and its football team, and all Oregonians. OSU fans will do better. Days before a dangerous Category 4 storm barreled towards Florida's Gulf Coast, the chief executive of Clearwater-based marketing agency sent texts downplaying the storm's impact, encouraging staff to bring their pets and kids to the office so they wouldn't miss work. Only after outrage spread on social media on Tuesday did Joy Gendusa, the head of Postcard Mania, announce it would close its headquarters on Wednesday and Thursday, turn it into a hurricane shelter for employees instead. The company is known for using a business management system tied to the Church of Scientology also based in Clearwater. This according to the Tampa Bay Times, Chandusa sent a staff memo apologizing to employees who felt that it came across as insensitive. The city of Regina in Saskatchewan issued an apology this week after flags raised to honor residential school survivors were hung upside down. Survivors' flags were raised along a bridge in honor of the upcoming National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Gee, gee, we should have one of those. It was brought to our attention that several of the survivors' flags recently raised on the bridge were upside down, the city said. This was an unintentional error. We have corrected it. The city said it will take more care in the future (laughs) to ensure flags are raised correctly. How much care does it take? Quote, the city of Regina understands it is deeply disrespectful to fly inverted flags and sincerely apologizes to all those who have been offended. The Washington County, Wisconsin Republican Party apologized after an overzealous volunteer displayed a sign trying to compare and associate the Democratic Party with two extremist and totalitarian regimes during Saturday's farmer's market in West Bend, Wisconsin. The sign displayed a donkey, the symbol for the Democratic Party, with a swastika and the flag of China. 
symbol of the Chinese Communist Party. Despite the Nazi and Communist parties having diametrically opposed ideologies, the volunteer was hoping to associate the extremism of the two parties with the Democratic Party. Quote, the Republican Party of Washington County condemns their use and apologizes to our community, they said. Senior executive at Meta, formerly Facebook, apologized this week for allowing a British teenager to, go- to view graphic Instagram posts related to self-harm and suicide before she took her own life. Meta's head of health and well-being, Elizabeth Lagone, told an inquest looking into the circumstances surrounding the death of Molly Russell at North London Coroner's Court that the teenager had viewed some content that violated our policies and we regret that. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of our broadcast. Before we go, a little news of the warm. Melting ice is one of the key threats of climate change. This year, low snowfall and persistent heat waves caused a 6% loss of glaciers in the Alps, according to a new Swiss study reported by a German news site, Deutsche Welle. Due to low fall and winter and persistent heat waves in the summer, at least three cubic kilometers of ice were lost in the Swiss Alps. Switzerland has recorded the worst slow melt rate since monitoring began over a century ago, according to a study released this week. The study, conducted by an expert group at the Swiss Academy of Sciences, validated that loss. More than 6% of the glacier volume. Last month, another study revealed that since the early 1930s, at least 1,400 glaciers in Switzerland have lost more than half their total volume. This year, the melt was so extreme, a bare, yeah, a bare rock that was buried for millennia resurfaced at one site. Dead bodies and even a plane that had gotten lost in the mountains decades ago were found, and many small glaciers have entirely vanished. So don't be going to Sweden for no glaciers. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the last word on this edition of the show. Back next week at the same time on these same radio stations or on your audio device of choice whenever you want. And it would be just like getting ourselves some more glaciers. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh.
tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh here at WWNO for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, I read them. You send them, I read them. Along with the playlist of the music heard here on, and your fast-disappearing chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. All of that and so much more is available at harryshearer.com, and I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the Crescent City.